Welcome to another event FOMO. The following recording is from Indigenous Women Futuring, a panel discussion about the book Indigenous Futures and Learnings Taking Place, with contributions from Indigenous women, women of Indigenous backgrounds, Black, Red and Brown women, and women whose scholarship is committed to Indigenous matters across spaces and times. The talk was hosted by the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration at the University of Melbourne and it took place as a webinar on the 18th of February, 2021. We are proud to present it to you today in podcast format to celebrate International Women's Day. Hello, everyone. Let's make a start. People are joining us this morning from all around the world. Um, and so it is my great pleasure um, to introduce um, a very special event. It is both the first event in the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration for 2021. And we couldn't be more thrilled um, that it is on the theme of Indigenous Women's Futuring to launch an outstanding edited collection titled Indigenous Futures and Learnings Taking Place. It's my great pleasure now uh, to introduce um, the panellists here today, who I've said are all contributors to this new edited collection. Um, if you're attending here, then you've already seen that this is a panel that is opening and launching the new book, Indigenous Futures and Learnings Taking Place. It is, has been um, co-edited by Licho Lopez and um, Gio Goella, who are joining us here today. And it's an extraordinary collection of black women and brown women and red women and indigenous women from country all around this world. And they've come together in this collection to reflect not just on education or curriculum or schooling as institutions in the way that our university's disciplinary architecture often asks us to do, but instead to reflect upon what learning is how and where learning takes place and that in its taking place, how Indigenous women create futures, imaginations of futures, hold memories of futures, and in doing so really, really challenge and resist um, much of the settler temporality that comes to shape not just the way that we commonly narrate our lives in a modern Western order, but how we are also called to account for that in our own systems of knowledge production within the university. Some of the people I'll be introducing today are scholars, uh, some are writers, some are filmmakers. They are all extraordinary black, brown, indigenous women. They are all knowledge holders of powerful and transformative understandings of the world that we live in today. I'll have more of my own reflections to um, contribute after they've each spoken. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this book has challenged and pushed further my own reflections on what futures are and how they function and who they function in the interests of. Um, but before we get to that, I'm really excited um, 
to introduce everyone. I'm going to introduce everyone as briefly as I can in the order that I'll then invite them to speak. They're going to speak to us, I hope, for around five minutes each, so not long, but hopefully long enough to really give us a sense and insight into um, the power of the ideas that um, form this collection. Um, and at the end of that, I'll offer some reflections of my own, which I feel very, very lucky to have been asked to do. And we'll make sure that we've got at least 20 minutes available for everyone in the audience watching today to ask questions of any and all of the panelists. So to begin, Licho Lopez Lopez is of, uh, I'm gonna have to seek forgiveness for my pronunciation before I even begin, I'm sorry, is of Abiella, an uninvited guest, she writes of Wurundjeri country. She also works with me at the University of Melbourne. She's a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. Um, in addition to this edited collection, she's previously authored The Making of Indigeneity, Curriculum History and the Limits of Diversity. Her co-editor of this collection is Dioconda Koala, a doctoral candidate already shooting stars and achieving things well beyond your um, doctoral candidature. Um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research is interdisciplinary and it looks at the history of ideas in education and their relation to the politics of being Indigenous, Brown and Black lives and environmental education in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Grace Simbulan is a documentary filmmaker and her work has been screened across the Philippines, South Korea, Japan and China. Her first feature film was um, was screened on CNN as one of the Philippines' top 10 films of 2019. Um, alongside that, she's an MA student in her second year, also at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where her research is focusing on the various forces affecting Indigenous groups in the southern Philippines. In this collection, she writes on the dreaming of futures and exploration of the dreams and resistance of the Obo Manabo. Roberta Hill of the Oneida Nation is a poet, she's a fiction writer and a scholar. And her poetry collections, Star Quilt, Philadelphia Flowers, Cicadas, um, have been published over decades. Her poetry has appeared in magazines and anthologies. And her collection to this particular collection is on the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving Address and its relevance for futures and learnings. The last panellist we have today is a Darug woman, Dr Joanne Ray, um, whose PhD was conferred from the Macquarie University in 2019, titled Country Tracking Voices, Darug Women's Perspectives on Presences, Places and Practices. She's now a research fellow at Macquarie University's Indigenous and Geography Departments, weaving postdoctoral, weaving postdoctoral Darug research across three different Darug sites. Her journey walks with Darug community, her ancestors and weaving across Nara. Her contribution here is on changing places, weaving city learnings into country futures. So without any further time from me, it's my great pleasure to um, begin with Licho. Good morning. Thank you, Sana. First country. We begin by acknowledging the land, the waters, all that is tangible and intangible, and which makes Wurundjeri country. 
with so much gratitude to Auntie Georgina for sharing space and for the many generations who for thousands of years have been looking after country. I am an uninvited guest on unceded lands um, and come from other stolen lands at the shores of the Caribbean and the banks of the Sinu River in the northern part of Abiyayala. This gathering today is taking place in the digital, enabled by Zoom, whose operations are made possible while situated on Mokwema Ojulone lands in what is colonially known as San Jose, California. We thank you all for taking a moment of your precious morning in these intensified times to be in conversation with us about indigenous futures taking place, a collection of chapters where the relational matters, where time is revisable, and where indigenous matters are dialogical and generative. So we are here to talk about time, or rather breaking futures out of time. Indigenous futures and learnings taking place is a collaborative enraged response against the Greek god Kronos and a calculated escape from chronological time and its urge to plan existences. Um, with escape, we are invoking the maroon legacies of my ancestors in the Caribbean to chart a fuga from the societies of now, which invoke Kronos in the descriptive statements that characterize children as being or falling behind. We do not need to look uh, that far to register the agony of governments or simply adults over how much poor kids in fill in the blank, Africa, Latin America, or any child for that matter, um, being or falling behind um, because of lack of access to face-to-face -face instruction in these pandemic times, or lack of access to the internet or technology, and of course, time. So the idea of indigenous people um, continuing to be made up as backward or in need of development, or as it is uh, familiar here, in need of intervention, are reasoned through chronological modes of timing that attempt to contain, retain, and restrict being in time. Time orders education in a fundamental way, not only because of school calendars, class or testing schedules, but importantly because education is meant as a way to change the person and equip them for times to come. So um, this is clear in schooling systems which are linked to the production of future citizens and societies. That kind of time regime plans or anticipates people into entanglements of values that face the uncertainties and the fears slash hopes of societies. Anticipatory regimes abide in the ontology of the not yet. Thus, anticipating implies an orientation of the self to inhabit time out of place by knowing that which has not yet become. That is, anticipation implies a performative process of rendering the future actionable. In the case of schooling, students become an actionable domain as future citizens or actors to reproduce society and ensure security to the kind of life that is valued. That actionable domain is activated on the basis of data, prescriptive curricula, testing, 
and educational policy to intervene in the learning experiences and lives of people. The schooling subject within this regime becomes a target of multi-governmental level algorithmic decision-making and the instrument for avoiding risks and also enhancing the possibilities of the self for human capital. However, anticipation does not need to be determined by reducing risks to the moral expectations of some and the instrumentalizing of lives for another's power and profit. Anticipation can be a critical engagement as well with time to break with teleological thinking by opening the relationships and perspectives of time in many of its instances and disrupting linear progressions between learning and becoming. So we are gathered here under the banner Indigenous Women Futuring. The book is replete with Indigenous women's writings and writings of Indigenous women anticipating life in geographies marked by dreaming literacies, Goana walking, narrating forests, and thanksgiving. And I now turn it to my colleagues or to my colleagues who will speak uh, some more about these different geographies. And to that, uh, we moved on to Geoconda. Good morning and evening to everyone. Um, before starting, I want to acknowledge and thank the lands that sustain my life and work. The Jope, cared by Hochunk elders and ancestors, and then Dian Highlands, cared by Kichwa and Kitukara elders. I want to give a special thanks to Luisa Cadena, Belgi Cadawa, Elodia Dawa, Laura Santillan, who are the Kichwa women who are the futurers of the story I'll share with you today. What follows are reflections and beats from the chapter called Kichwa Stories of Futures, Narratives for Otherwise Good Living. The chapter proposes that futures are stories that have not yet taken place. Those stories come into being through a narrator who reads signs collectively produced. The collective is people understood as runa in Kichwa language. Runa, which can be translated as a person or people, describes all beings who are familiar and pertain to the Kichwa life. Trees and animals are also runa, when they belong as actors in the world of the Kichwa speaker and are therefore people. The signs used by human storytellers to weave narratives thus might as well be a part of other people's stories. Here I think with the Afro-Caribbean philosopher, Sylvia Winter, who says that human beings are homos narrata, a hybrid auto-instituting language and storytelling species. She argues that stories are formative of the possibilities of being and the possibilities of the world we make. The stories can set our sense of self free, of oppressive, universalizing and singularizing descriptive statements of identity on what it means to be human, which are traceable to the Renaissance and informed by social Darwinism. The same is true about time and histories. Times can be free from singularizing progressing time that binds pasts, presents, and futures to cause-effect chains. Histories can be freed from stories that dismiss their construction and the multiple possibilities of storytelling that survive 
even if untold. Indigenous stories are a way in which important untold histories survive and make present many senses of self. The survivance provoked by indigenous stories does weaves presences through multiple selves encountering each other across times in long and short periods. Akitra elder Luisa Cadena, for example, said that when this world ends, the earth turns inside out, taking everything that we can see around us underground, and it will be the turn of the ancient people to live outside again. In this way, the ancestors, all the people, human and more than human, are part of the renovation of the world and are resting futures. Simultaneously, they are the weavers of the everyday. The other space of the past that weaves futures is the forest. The forest is home to the trees, animals, the spirits, dead, which are overlapping and unstable categories of ancestors living in this age. These ancestors come to give advice, signs, and medicine through the night in dreams. Elodia Dawa, a teacher of pottery master, explains that to interpret dreams, people often meditate about the dream and discuss it with family and friends and finally decide on its meaning. This process often happened during the early hours of the morning, 3 to 5 a.m., because the forest is still awake at that time. Interpreting futures, signs, was a thing to do at the moment when both the grandparents of the present, the community elders, and the grandparents of the past, the death, trees, and animals, made their presence felt to give advice. This advice opens narratives and makes possible descriptive statements to story oneself into the day and which do not attempt to bring the future to the present to manage it but rather to listen, interpret, transform, and story a relational self. This way of making good days, good futures, good lives, disrupts bureaucratized notions of good living, which in the, past, in the last decade in Ecuador have been part of policies and public projects to plan the future of the nation and make a developmentalist good living for all. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Geo. Um, it's a really powerful story. It calls upon one to, to reflect of, um, you know, the collapsing of, of temporality in everyday acts. Um, next, we'll come to Grace. Good day, everyone. I am Grace Mbulan, and I am the author of Dreaming of the Futures and Exploration of the dreams and resistance of the Obmanobo. So I would like to begin by acknowledging the Ho-Chunk people, traditional custodians of the land where I present from today, which is also known as Madison, Wisconsin in Turtle Island, North America, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I would also like to acknowledge Aposandawa, the land of the Obmanobo people for sustaining Ba'i's existence and from which this chapter is situated. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where Ba'i is on today. Mrs. Saugas of the Credit, the Anishnabeg, the Chipewa, 
and the Wendat peoples, also known as Toronto, Canada. The dreams of Ba'i and her clan, to which this chapter is informed, command the rules and existence of their being. Through the examination of Ba'i's narrative, I have proposed that dreaming has reestablished itself as a critical means of knowledge production. Dreaming and dream sharing foster the continuation of Obomanobo ways of knowing and anticipating the future by resisting attempts of erasure by colonial and hegemonic pedagogies. Ba'i and her clan have used dreams to bring the presence and knowledge of their ancestors to their decision-making process to guide and protect them. So in my conversation with Ba'i, I learned that dreams are not static, nor is it linear. It, is not, it does not only inform us about the present, but informs us of the past and the futures. Just like histories, dreams and dreaming are constantly evolving. The dreams gain meaning through attention, and they gain meaning for the givers of that attention through careful communal study. Ba'i's narrative is not just a story of resistance, but of violence through continued erasure, displacement, verbal and physical threats by the national government and private corporations. The current Philippine administration has prevented Ba'i from coming home to her people and land. Ba'i continues to take space by organizing from Canada through her second liners in Mount Apo, who Ba'i trains to be dream literate. Dream literacy in this chapter is defined as the ability to provide sound dream interpretations through constant dream sharing and communal interpretation. She continues to raise awareness about her people and land through dialogue with Filipino Canadians and Filipinos in Toronto. Despite all the violence she's experienced, Ba'i persists. Today, Ba'i continues to dream and pay attention to her dreams, despite being 8,000 miles away from her people and land. Ba'i relies on her dreams to help her make sense of her situation and her new role as a leader in exile. She continues to share and interpret her dreams with her family, second liners, and Obomanobo leaders and elders who continue to listen. So my aim for this chapter is to present a decolonized perspective on Ba'i's history by exploring ways her clan records and transmits memory and knowledge through Ba'i's dream and its interpretation. Ultimately, it is to give readers a more diverse look of what powerful resistance looks like. It is humble, it is persistent, and it is female. Ba'i also frequently interprets her dreams through poetry. One of her poems, to which I will end my speech with, is entitled Silence. It speaks to the feeling of separation she feels from her community. Here lies a silence, she says, that crept into my flesh. To break that silence, her spirit separates from her body and returns to the land where she was born. Silence in a consciousness unwritten, almost unspoken, in this part of the West. Thus, here my body hides, but my spirit soars or strives. My body and spirit breaks into vast distance and time. 
as I watched the winter skies as my spirit returned to villages, hearing indigenous cries. Every day my heart departs, embrace you all in my past, though engulfed with silence. To the fight I pay the full reverence for a just peace in our land. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grace. Roberta, would you like to add? I am uh, Roberta Hill and I am uh, acknowledging and that I'm grateful to be on Ho-Chunk land, but also this land was also uh, part of the Kickapoo and the Meskwaki people. Uh, and that my own homeland is in New York state and my nation was moved to Wisconsin. The Oneidas are in Wisconsin and in Canada and in New York. Um, and so I think what I'd like to do is even though I talk about the pandemic and I talk about the future and the um, events and the ways in which we have been colonized. Uh, in order for the audience to understand, I think I'll just explain uh, who the Haudenosaunee are. Uh, and Haudenosaunee people, um, Haudenosaunee means longhouse. And it's imagined as a Quonset hut. Uh, longhouses were our, our ways of living, what we lived in. and. Um, the, in, in the imaginary, uh, the longhouse stretched from one end of New York State, beginning with the Mohawks, uh, and then the Cayugas and Onondagas and, oh, the Oneidas and the Senecas. I got them all mixed up, but anyway, the Senecas are on the far uh, uh, western door. But there, are, uh, there originally were five, and then the Tuscaroras came and joined uh, in the 1700s to be the sixth. So there are six nations. And we were uh, aligned in a time of war by the coming of a prophet named Degad Mweda, who um, created what was a structure called the Great Law of Peace. Now, this was established many generations ago, but the Thanksgiving address of the Haudenosaunee goes back even further, thousands and thousands of years. And it was a ritual and continues to be a ritual where people come together to uh, learn how to share that spark of life with one another and to help one another. So I just thought I would read a few sentences um, that um, in the 19th, now remember, we have been there for thousands of years and encountered the British and um, worked through colonization for many generations. Um, so that um, even in 1974, some of the Haudenosaunee chiefs went to the United Nations to talk about uh, what they called the basic call to consciousness, to come to an understanding of our need to uh, recognize how we are interdependent with the earth. But in 1990s, uh, one of the um, spiritual leaders of the Wolf Clan along with other Mohawks um, decided that they needed to share the Thanksgiving address. And they published this very small little book called uh, the Thanksgiving Address. And it's still available through the, an organization called the Tracking Project in New Mexico. Uh, and it shares how we uh, the ritual that we come together uh, and talk to and share with one another 
um, through a speaker, an Oneida speaker comes and shares the, the connections that we have, the interconnections that we have to all living beings. And it can be a long address or a short address, um, but generally um, it is intended then to um, bring people together. And I was very um, grateful to get the help of Chief Just Judge Hill who talked about how the cultural values expressed in the Thanksgiving address uh, differ from people who ask for something from God or the creative forces. Um, in this way, the people come together to change their minds and clear their minds and to be grateful for everything that they have. I also received a lot of help from Bob Brown, who's a native speaker from Canada and who also pointed out how this particular uh, Thanksgiving goes back to the creation account where people are really um, considered part of that spark of life um, that is really cosmic in origin. And so he really helped me by translating. He said, when I asked him what the word for spirit was, he said, Antun Hetzla. And it means the same thing as life. So one of the things that we think about when we come together and what is greatly needed now is how people need to cooperate with each other. And this particular ritual is intended then to draw people together and to help them. And so I'm just going to end with um, a few, just the sentence that mean, needs to point to the future to create indigenous futures means we take responsibility for life continuing, for feeling gratitude and generosity, for healing all that has been destroyed, means that we are healing ourselves, that there is no separation between humankind and the earth that nurtures us. So thank you. I'm very grateful to be here and be part of this project. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roberta. Joe. Would you like to um, conclude our panel as our final panellist for today? Thank you very much, Warramamidiga. Uh, thank you and um, hello everyone who is um, participating in this web of connection that we have today. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge um, elders past, present and emerging uh, both here on Daragnura, um, which is the um, majority of the Sydney Basin in Australia, um, but also to thank um, Auntie Georgina and the Wurundjeri um, people and um, her um, lovely welcome into her uh, country um, um, in Victoria today. I'd also like to thank each and every one of you, the speakers today, um, for the wisdom and perspectives, the diversity of the perspectives and wisdoms that have um, been presented um, in um, across across the um, uh, various countries and peoples who uh, are being represented. So I'd just like to acknowledge um, Anyone here um, who is coming from other um, 
Nurus, other countries and their elders, their wise ones, their um, ancestors, and recognise for us the importance of caring for country and how we uh, continue a legacy of um, responsibility, um, reciprocity of giving back, and also our um, respect and respect for all the diversities um, that um, bind us together today. So um, my um, contribution to this forum and this um, writing that has been in, undertaken was looking at the, um, the way um, country for um, Darug and for Darug Nura um, is a city and um, has, is, rep, is presenting today as a city. And so how do we um, weave our city learnings into country and how do we um, engage with um, the dominance of the colonial um, settler mentalities um, and still maintain our, um, our presence and our places, our voices, etc. when um, so much is uh, skyscrapers and um, uh, urban scapes and things like this. And to recognise that country is still there in its present forms. So the heart of the chapter and the work is around um, decolonising education in, um, in the process of my research and the process of um, teaching and how do we um, move our learnings outside of the brick walls of the classrooms. During the course of the research, I, I realised my own um, uh, place um, of presence between um, the colonised um, historian of, um, of Nura and um, the um, communal and um, first first peoples of, of this place. And I connected that through Goanna and I've talked often about Goanna walking and it was really this consciousness between um, walking what the academy requires of us and walking through um, Darug um, lenses. And in that process, um, it's recognisable that we are interweaving. We are weaving between the modernity and the, and the presences and places of 5 million people on um, Daragnura today um, and the dominance of, of this. So how do we actually transform um, this dominant narrative um, that is um, in, encouraging us to disconnect from Nura and how do we continue our cultural obligations um, to care for Nura and to decolonise both ourselves as well as others in that process. So that's really been the focus of my work and the writing chapter is, is um, part of that process. So um, 
my caring for country is, is um, embedded in education and um, how we can um, transform some of the hearts and minds of those 5 million as they come through um, the university uh, to which I belong. And, um, and that has involved actually taking our students out of the brick walls and taking them onto country and actually engaging them with the type of educational model that has been practiced for thousands of years across Australia. And that is actually being out on country, connecting with the presences uh, that inhabit and doing so through Indigenous um, protocols. And those protocols involve the um, actual acknowledgement of um, the spirituality of place, the spirituality of the presences and their um, inhabitants there. So we talk um, to the students about we don't walk into someone's home without knocking on the front door and acknowledging our presence. The same applies when we go out on country and we are um, engaging through our, our protocols that we pay respect to the presences and the elders as we, we um, engage on Nura. And in the process of that, we actually uh, are physically changing our spirit and our well-being in that process. So we encourage the students to um, really pay attention to their hearing really pay attention to the, what they're seeing, really pay attention to um, their breath and their and the perfumes. Um, in Australia, we are blessed with eucalyptus and eucalypt trees every, almost everywhere and the perfumes of the eucalyptus and to recognise the differences between um, the living of the, um, the tree after the rain and the perfumes after the rain to really engage with, with um, the, the seasons and the changes, even if they're minute to the ordinary eye. Um, we actually are opening ourselves to a, a relationship with place that is totally ignored normally in the city. And we are actually saying that it, when we connect through our spiritual ways, we're actually opening ourselves to care. And when we have our places of connection, we actually are opening ourselves to caring and the caring then becomes a sense of belonging. Victor Stefferson is a very famous Aboriginal man here in Australia who um, is uh, writing a lot about fire and the agency of fire for healing and how we've all been suffering in Australia and other places across the planet from mega fires where there's just been these outrageous um, destructions and um, uh, in contrast to the healing of fire, which um, has um, been undertaken to care for country for, you know, 65,000 or more years across the continent of Australia. When um, colonial settlers arrived here, they thought there were so many examples of um, places that they thought were park-like and Bill Gamage speaks to this. 
And um, in fact, this is the, the evidence of the, the relationship with place that has been engaged for thousands of years across here. So when we open our students to these in the city, we're actually bringing, they can, they can connect when they understand that climate change and um, all the patterns of behaviour over the last, particularly the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, uh, these patterns of behaviour are unsustainable and we cannot continue in this way. So we have to change um, the way that we relate and engage um, with our biodiversities. And so taking people into a, um, students into a, a sense of relationship, a sense of caring, actually brings them to a sense of belonging. And Victor Stephenson speaks of so many people as being disconnected, the disconnected peoples that we have. Um, and, and this is uh, the sense that we need to actually reconnect for so many people um, in order to, to have beneficial um, influences and so that we can have sustainable futures. So um, this has been the essence of my work and, um, yeah, life-changing because um, we don't all know when we're colonised how much um, destruction that, that has involved. So Yanama Budri Gumada. Walk with good spirit and thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, for anchoring our panel um, with that. I think it's a, um, a really important reminder and it, it, it ties together really nicely, I think, two very powerful themes that came through this collection but also through each of the presentations that the five of you have given this morning which is that there is on the one hand in all of the work that you've done this, um, as, as Lito talked about, the breaking futures out of time, a disruption to settler time, as, as Mark Rifkin has talked about it, a disruption to teleological orientations, to linear narratives. But alongside the disruption that this collection of work gives to our very concept of time and the work that it does in the world to structure and order us in ways that are inconsistent and misaligned from the world we live in. What also comes through, and it came through very strongly in your remarks, Joe, is also a breaking or, or a a revelation of how time has been broken out of place. That through these linear accounts of temporality that order systems of development, not just of nations and countries and economies, but also of children in classrooms who rush from bell to bell, fear that the task they have been given in between has not been accomplished that we are also faced with the disruption that poses for us in our relationship to place, to our relationship to the more than human. Because these linear temporalities don't just pull us through time, but they pull us across the territories, geographies, countries and kinships that we hold. 
So I want to come back to those two themes, I guess, of time and place in a bit of a discussion later. And I'd be really interested to unpack with the audience as well as across each of you how those tensions between time and place come through in your work. Um, But before I do that, um, it's my great pleasure to have the role of officially launching this collection. Um, So in doing that, I'd like everyone in the audience to know that the publisher of this collection, Routledge, um, has offered a 20% discount on its price for anyone who's interested in purchasing this. Um, I know my team has been working hard to ensure our university's library has has it held in its collection. I encourage academics watching to also put in a request to each of your libraries. But for individuals or other organisations that would like to purchase it, um, we'll circulate the discount um, in our communications with you afterwards. To launch this book, um, I've been invited to reflect on it and offer some some of my own thoughts and notes. And I thought that the way that I would do this just over the next five or ten minutes is to talk about how I read it. Um, So I read it um, as a Torres Strait Islander, um, which is one of the Indigenous peoples um, of, of this continent that encompasses hundreds of language groups and nations. Um, and I read it as a political theorist. That's kind of my scholarly training and my day job. And in particular, my work has very much been focused on the politics of childhood. I'm particularly interested in how um, the concept of childhood emerged during the Western Enlightenment and the kind of work that this demarcation, this segmentation of a particular part of the life course, and particularly the functions of institutionalisation that followed that, institutions of school, institutions of juvenile justice, institutions of orphanages. But in particular, I've also, as a Torres Strait Islander, been really interested in how those concepts of childhood are transformed in the colonial context and how they come to play and rest differently on different kinds of people's bodies. That is, it rests differently on Indigenous people's bodies. It rests differently on black and brown bodies. When Leecho began, she talked about the educational narrative that these settler linearities of time produce in framing children as being or falling behind. And I think of the way in which that notion of falling behind is underpinned by a common and dominant conception in Western thought of children as becomings rather than children as beings. And this debate in childhood studies literature about what happens to our approach to children's lives and their rights when we think of them as always something in development rather than as a human being in and of themselves in that particular moment. I think too then of the ways in which our orientation to the future is often produced through claims that we make around children and young people. Now, this does not pick up on the sites of attention of all of your contributions to this collection, but it is perhaps where my work and Leecho's work have, has come into conversation around within our own institution. 
So one of the things that I've observed in my research and have been interested in my research are the ways in which we represent children and young people's interests as a way for adults to lay claim to our futures. I'm particularly interested in how we lay claim to political futures and democratic futures, how we say that in the interests of children or to think of the next generation, we must do X. Now, I think often these claims are made powerfully and emphatically, and I'm often in agreement with them. I'm a mother. I tend to do it myself. <laughs> but I also, it also causes me to reflect critically on the way in which the future often appears as a new colonial horizon. That is, that the future risks appearing as another space, another time and place that is shaped and ordered by those who do not and can never belong there. For Black and Indigenous peoples claiming futures, claiming the right to shape and make the futures is a deeply political and necessary act because it denies all of those who have for long, so long insisted that we don't belong there, that we belong to the past, that we belong not just to different geographies as they move us around continents, as Ro Robert, Roberta described, um, but they move us back in time. So I find myself sitting with this collection and unable to relinquish the, the very present um, part of it in which this is a collection of women's voices that this is a collection of stories that are both deeply maternal and matriarchal. And that one of the interesting um, aspects of that, that resists, I think, the risk of a colonial future, the risk of standing at the precipice of time and saying, my work today is the job of trying to make certain that which can never be made certain. My work today is an effort to produce the future in my own image, in my own ideals, in my own values. Um, and instead is one that says, my making of the future is a gift. That my making of the future is done through acts of parenting, not just of our own children, but of our relationship to our broader ecosystems to the more than human, to our kin beyond the human. And I think too of the tension that we currently live in and where Jo ended her discussion on the panel with the recent memory that we have in Australia of these extraordinary bushfires. That is that there is at this particular moment the possibility of no futures the possibility of the end of ecosystems um, and of ecological stability that makes the very concept of futures possible. In all of this, I probably open up more space for questions, which is my intention. Um, so I guess I would open to the audience and invite them to um, contribute questions to the Q&A function, and I will move through those the best I can. Um, but I also want to pose to the panel, I guess, not so much a question, but an invitation to return to those two themes that I began with of both what this work contributes, not just to our understanding of time, 
but also to what these critical understandings of time to, to do to our sense of place. I find myself thinking of all of this work as a thinking about the more than human. How does country hold time in place in a way that resists and challenges these linear teleologies that settler colonial conditions have compelled us towards? I'm going to pause there um, and I'll open it back up to the panel to pick up on that or any other ideas or themes that they'd like to pick up. And I look forward to um, seeing the questions from our audience. Gio. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I can, I can uh, try to start um, to answer uh, or to just engage with the question that you just posed. Because I think I've been also thinking in the same way and trying to think how, how this land hold stories and time. And I think one of the reflections coming from the stories and conversations in the Andes and the Amazonia is um, how mountains, forests, um, rivers, they're constantly moving, but they're also constantly gathering, holding, hugging, uh, just as our bodies do, just as when we are kids, uh, from the moment that we born to this moment, we've been accumulating so many stories, so many, and, uh, and you know, the food, the, the nourishment, the, yeah, and the, and the, yeah, and the knowledge, right? that is, is, is there um, in, in that body becoming um, different, growing, expanding, um, changing, and, and so do landscapes, and so do mountains and forests and trees. And, and I think in that sense, they hold the wisdom, they hold the nourishment, they hold the care of and, you know, several peoples, peoples, humans and more than humans as well, that continue to together and collectively transform. And I think in that sense, they hold time and in themselves, they hold as well a lot of history, a lot of the weight as well, weight in a good sense, right? Like this profound mm -hmm. sort of, um, you know, depth of of these different lives. Yeah. And I, one thing that I I want to say a special thing to to Joe is that it. I think part of of what I'm trying to say is something that she was saying already, on how care becomes and comes as we listen, and 
as we establish that relationship um, and it's just like when we become kin with uh, someone that just born, it's already there because of all the process, all those nine months. <laughs> but at the same time, it's in that listening, in that relation, that all that love uh, and that strong of, strength of the relationship continues to, to grow and to, and to become more profound. And to the point that that, that we see now waters in, in her eyes, but also really, really moving in, in you know, all across uh, all this virtuality to, to my body. So thank you as well, Joe. And yeah, and I don't know who else wants to uh, start to answer or engage with that. Thank you, Gio. I mean, I think, you know, I, I've just, as all of you have spoken, um, in different ways, you know, I do, I, I just find myself really thinking of how, how country and place captures both the depth of time, you know, in the stories that it holds. And, you know, I, you know, I have a colleague in the science faculty who works on, on bushfires who, you know, ha tells a different history of, you know, of the myth of wilderness in Australia, that this was wild country. You know, it was never wild country. It was always a part of an ecosystem constituted of human beings. And the stories that the science he can tell as an Aboriginal scholar aligns with the stories that we hold as people who belong to that ecosystem. Um, and so there is both the depth of past in place, but also the depth of what's at stake for futures um, and that, that that collapses in place in the same way that each of your work in different ways collapses the concept of time at a conceptual level. Leecho, did you want to come in? Oh, Roberta. And Joe, Roberta and Joe wanted to say yeah. something. I just wanted to mention in my chapter, I talk about the power of memory and the way in which within the language, the speaker who is giving the Thanksgiving address is um, helping people to remember uh, and to continue because without memory, uh, we have no sense of time. So if you have Alzheimer's disease, you have no sense of time. So memory is crucial, I think, to this discussion. And it, the ritual itself then links the sense of memory of ancestors and of place in that the place is who we are because we are people who gain sustenance from whatever is around us. It becomes us and we move back and bring back whatever we are back to the earth itself. So I think in the Western uh, culture and I just think of John Locke who has everything encased in little brains and everything separate. And, the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address moves things completely in the opposite direction to say, we need to keep an open mind. We need to be open and loving and aware of one another and cooperate because we're in an interrelated system. And that, that connects to the ways in which place, memory, learning, and the futures are all, all moving along in interconnecting with one another. So that's what I was just thinking about. Thank you, Roberta. Joe, did you want to come in? Yes, I was, I was just thinking in terms of um, agency as the 
essence of these relationships and sense of movement and where do we get our sense of time from. And as Roberta was just saying, I think it's really true, memory is absolutely critical in our relationship. Um, and um, without our relationships, we um, can't have a sense of our own self because as we learn as children, you know, we are learning from our, whether it's our backyard or um, however the form of, of our learning from our parents and our, um, the presences that we related to as, as small children, um, it's the memory of those things which actually positions ourselves as having a sense of identity as, as, as a sense of self or selves. And rather than fixtures or one self, um, I think the openness towards our ability to, um, to recognise the fluidity of being. And I get stuck into the um, ING, <laughs> the ing of, of agency and how when we think of the cosmos, we're thinking in terms of agency, of change, of um, that interwoven spiral. And, um, and we are that as well as that is us. And so it's this, this uh, recognition that um, um, there isn't a separation unless we don't remember. Mm. And it's only in our memory and our, our um, engagement. And none of us have come back from dementia that I'm aware of. Um, and so we don't really know what goes on in that place, at that space. And heaven, you know, but from, from the rest of humanity's perspective, they go, oh, my goodness, you know, that's terrible. Well, I'm not convinced that we don't know anything better. All we know is we're judging by our own um, perspectives. So I, I, I'm not to sit, not trying to diminish the pain and the suffering that goes on in those things, but there's that um, constant sense that um, we know. I think that's so interesting, Joe. I think of um, the way in which ageing is sometimes described as a return to childhood and that dementia is sometimes re referred to as a return to childhood. So in this developmental landscape of a human life course, that they produce a circle, but it's at this beginning and end point that is somehow um, not human or less human as a less significant um and i think you're right it's not about diminishing the great difficulties harms challenges sadness that go with um dementia but also thinking about what is the work that we're doing relationally and socially that um often amplifies those harms or deepens those challenges um so I think that's really interesting. Grace, I wanted to invite you in because I, as, as Roberta and Joe were talking about memory, I was really thinking of the way in which you describe dreaming and the interpretation of the communal act of interpreting dreams and the ways in which um, it, what I took from, 
from your work on dreaming of the way in which it work, it is both a memory and a projection, depending on how that communal interpretation takes shape? Um, one of the things that I really um, wanted to include or incorporate and tell, um, communicate with this chapter was how um, dreams and its interpretation was able to bridge uh, not just the present, but also the past and the futures of the Obomanobo through um, Ba'i's narrative. Um, and I think uh, this also would tie in. I, I'd like to like go into like some of the questions in the, the thread. Yep. Um, I wanted to tie it in with how this work offers us during, um, what this, does this work offer us during a time of a pandemic and social rest? Um, through Ba'i's um, narrative and through her, her and her clan's um, listening and interpreting uh, the dreams which come from um, their ancestors and which come from the spirits around where everything takes space. Um, these are significant for them because they guide them and protect them. Like the stories that they get, get from dreaming and from the dreams have continued to protect them even until now. Um, until now, Ba'i is 8,000 miles away from her people and land. And she has continued to resist and to take place even though she's not in her space, like in, her, in mm. Mount Apple. Through her second liners, which are the people who she engages with in her community. Um, even though she's in Canada, she continues to organize people to bridge the gap, to use dreams, to make meaning of not only what's happening now, but also to what's happening in um, her people and land in the Philippines and Southern Mindanao. So, um, it's also significant um, to raise the voices of dreams in this in this in this chapter, um, because I think Ba'i's story, Ba'i's story of resistance, provides us with like the motivation to carry on. Like despite having this pandemic, um, she has relied on dreams and its interpretation to. Um, you know, continue to find solutions um, and to bridge the gap and um, to continue to take place. Yeah. Thanks so much, Grace. Um, if I may, Leecha, I might ask you to respond to one of the questions in the chat, which you, you might want to pick up on some of these ideas as well, but I thought it might be nice in our last five minutes to circle back in some ways to where you began in launching the book in terms of the implications of this thinking around time and, and thinking against time in so many ways for educational settings. So there's a question um, here on learning and becoming. Instead of a linear relationship, can we envisage learning as potentially opening possible ways to be for both humans and the more than human, recognising that we're continually becoming never complete or final? How would you respond to that? Yeah, uh, thank you. And um, like Gio, I'm also deeply moved by um, the uh, 
sense of, 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 of concern in futuring life that came out of Joe's um, reading and also following uh, Roberta's and Grace's um, a beautiful work, uh, thinking also them with other women. Um, I'm gonna hold on to that question for a second and um, get return to um, Grace and uh, the, the question that Grace was answering earlier that had to do um, with the pandemic and what that what the, the moment, uh, the, the pandemic moment, which is also a, a, a multiplicity of moments within itself, um, offering and what, what this work can offer to, to, to our thinking in these times. And so in the concluding chapter of the book, we have a couple, a, 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 a sort of a, a speculative fictive or fiction story um, um, told by an elder, an indigenous elder in the past about the, about the present, about 2020 being the present in which um, we write the story. Um, in, in that story, there's um, the, the, the two moments. The first one um, um, is a, a, a reading of what, ha what is happening at the moment that comes from the production of the human. And these ways, I guess it connects to the last question um, of, the, of the human and more than human. We, in many ways in the book, try to suspend um, the notion of the human in itself, um, a production out of anti-Blackness uh, that, that um, is also attached to, to harm and to injury. Um, and, and so in the beginning, uh, in the beginning of the story, um, the, the, the speculation of what might be happening now takes us to a second moment um, of this speculative story of what the world could look like if we were to um, leave um, a lot of the production of, of the human, and, and that includes schooling as we know it, um, to different forms of relationality that is more attuned to um, listening um, and to the relational and to um, the production of concepts that are not yet part um, of how we world life. And so um, that question, I guess in many ways is an invitation perhaps to engage with that story in two parts. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to, to, to circulate it. It's also um, outside of the book uh, and available to the public already. Um, uh, to I was gonna ask Lucho, can I read from the, the opening part of that ancestral story? Because I think it was just a really, um, it, it's a really transformative way of displacing, I think, how we're thinking about the pandemic at the moment. So I'm reading from the book now from the final chapter that Leitros just described, and I'm just going to read a few sentences. But it begins, Ancestral 2020 Vision, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, Part 1. Waititi, tell me that origin story, the one where another life begins in the future. The year is, never mind, we don't count time that way, not in years, well, at least not in Gregorian years. That is something that will begin with beings who will call themselves humans. They will live in the future, tens of thousands of years from now, in the year 2020. There will be death unlike no other. I think it's a, a really just powerful um, shock to the discourse that we have been compelled to all participate in around this um, pandemic. And I, I think it's an um, extraordinary way to express it. 
did you want me to follow up on that, Sana, or should we go to Joe? I am. I, I could do both. I'm really curious about what Joe has to share. Maybe let's go. Let's do that. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, and I'll be very quick. So um, I just um, that scenario raised for me um, the the um, the fact that um, the year after um, British settlers, or oh, the British invaded Australia. Um, we had a, a smallpox pandemic here and it wiped out most of the population, the Indigenous population of Sydney area at that time. And it totally um, disrupted the, um, the relationships with places because uh, the numbers of people were um, decimated by um, more, perhaps more than 50%. Um, the records show. So um, today we face these, this pandemic um, across the planet and it, while hopefully the statistics aren't going to end up being the same, the fact that there's such disruptions in the, in the sense of priorities and the sense of connections and relationships and things like this, I think um, these... Um, these are Nura speaking to us, for me. You know, this is this, this sense that we can't continue and, and we have to reconnect and, you know, actually uh, reform. So I'll just leave that. But it just brought that 1789 um, memory um, back uh, to, to that, yeah, that instance. Thanks so much, Joe. We are almost out of time, so I won't go back to Leecho, but I just want to thank you all for such a stimulating discussion this morning, but also such an important piece of work and such a welcome piece of work in this particular moment. Um, Joe, you know, I took strange, sad comfort this time last year as our lives were changed by the kind of public health response to the pandemic in, you know, knowing that this was not as many would describe it to us unprecedented, that I live on Wurundjeri country, I live on country that too was affected by pandemics following the arrival of British invaders. And there was great grave sadness and, and grief that is recovered in those moments of realisation. But there is also that Time, sense of time folding back on itself, that what is future has already been passed and that there are forms of resistance and endurance that Indigenous people all around the world embody, um, you know, in the way that we conduct ourselves today. Um, there are some excellent questions in the chat that we didn't get to, um, particularly, you know, I, I see that last question on digital technologies and, and the way that Leecho named Zoom as a place, which I think is really important in the year that we've had in the way that we work today. Um, the ISRC held a digital futures seminar series um, two years ago. So for anyone who's interested, if you jump on our website um, in our past recordings, there's an excellent series called um, Indigenous Peoples and Digital Futures, I think. Um, and there are some great discussions and examples of that, of Indigenous um, histories 
of of the the internet, um, but also of Indigenous engagement with current and emerging digital technologies. Um, so after that little shameless plug, um, let me thank Joe, Grace, Leecho, Roberta, Gioconda, um, Auntie Georgina, who welcomed us. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to start the day. And I'm sure um, the audience, like myself, will be reflecting on some of these really pressing questions and challenges and an endless sense of possibilities and multiplicities of different ways of thinking about our place and time in the world. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Event FOMO. Our thanks go to the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration and Eleanor Benson. The speakers you heard are Ligia Lopez-Lopez, Giocondo Coelho, Grace Pimentel-Simbulan, Roberta Hill and Dr Joanne Ray. Chris Hatzis is our sound engineer and editor. Andy Horvath is our executive producer. I'm Sylvie Van Wall. Event FOMO is an original podcast series created by Dr. Andy Horvath at the University of Melbourne. 